Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy. Thank you, Genealogy Adventures, even. Thank you for sharing part of your Sunday with us. Yes, good morning, good eat, good afternoon. <laughs> I'm here, I'm here. <laughs> I'm Donya. I'm Brian. And today we are joined by Tim Wise, who's an anti-racist writer, an educator, and essayist. He is an international speaker. He's spoken at, I think, around over a thousand universities, high schools, um, community groups, both here in the States and abroad. He's a regular contributor to um, radio, radio station programs and television news programs. Welcome to the show, Tim. We are so excited to have you on this week. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Thank you very much. Sorry, Don, Don did you have a question? No, um, I just wanted to say hello. You know me. I, so basically, Tim, let me give you the background of how we do the show. Um, we talk to you and we have live, we have a live Facebook stream that allows us to receive comments and our fans will come up and they will see, they will ask questions. They're all ready to hear from you. Um, I'm very excited. My favorite once we realized we were going to get you, I think my favorite one was the Wichita State and um, how you were speaking and telling the story of your daughters, your very intelligent daughters, mind you. <laughs> most <laughs> and, of the um, time, most of the time, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, we all had those kids that just sometimes you look at them like, you sure you came from me? Right. <laughs> but, yeah. but yes, um, I, I really love that story and the story about your, your grandfather, you know, not your grandfather, I think it was your grandmother yeah. who was being taken care of. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just ready to hear, just talk to you, especially with the things that are going on today sure. and just showing the correlation with genealogy. So I'm very excited to talk with you. Well, thank yeah, you. Very yeah. thank um, I would love to hear how you even started on this journey about combat, you know, being combating and speaking about and writing about um, racism. Sure. Well, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I live again today. There was a 10-year period uh, in there where I lived in New Orleans. I went to school at Tulane University and then lived there an additional six years after I graduated. But with the exception of that 10 years and about five months in Houston uh, in 1992 that I don't talk much about, um, I've been in Nashville pretty much the entire time. Um, and growing up as a child in the 70s, I was born in 68, growing up in the 70s, uh, had parents who were not activists by any stretch, but they were certainly um, racially progressive parents uh, and made very some very deliberate decisions. My mother, in particular, made very deliberate decisions that shaped who I would become. I went to preschool at a historically black college down the road uh, from where I live now, but across town from where I lived then, Tennessee State University. So I was one of only about three white kids in the preschool class of 25 kids who wasn't black. Um, the women who ran that program were African-American women. Most of the kids were black kids. So I grew up in a context where my peer group was, you know, mostly black kids early on. The authority figures outside of my own folks were mostly black women. Uh, and I think that what that did, and I've talked about this a lot, so I won't belabor the point, but, but one of the things that it did was it meant that, you know, when I got into elementary school in the early 70s, shortly after Nashville schools had really become fully integrated because you know, 20 years after Brown v. Board, they still weren't really until I started school that year in 1974. By that time, as a kid who'd gone to TSU for preschool, when I see my black friends, kids that I actually have a connection to, being treated differently by teachers, you know, being 
um, punished more harshly for the same behavior that all six and seven year olds are doing. Um, when I see them put in the remedial level class and the white kids are in the advanced class, I don't know what's going on. I don't have the language for it, but I do know that it's separating me from my friends. And so there's that thing that you just sort of have, you know, at the back of your mind, that's like something's, something's wrong. And you file it away and you file it away, but it keeps eating at you. And over the years, you know, I would notice that that mistreatment got worse and worse and, and the divide between us was quite strong. And I remember, and it ties into the genealogy issue in third grade, 1977, I was in third grade when Roots came out. And I remember sitting and reading Alex Haley's book. I was eight years old. And I'm sitting and reading Roots in the back of a third grade class. And the teachers who were white at the school did not appreciate that I was reading this book. They first of all thought I was showing off. They're like, you can't possibly be reading that book. You're eight years old. But I, I could read really well. It was one of the few skills I had. So I'm sitting there reading this book and they weren't happy with it because they didn't really want this eight-year-old white child to start thinking about slavery and to start mm. thinking about systems of oppression. Now, the black teachers at my school loved the fact that I was reading this book. They were actually like, yeah, you read that book and then you tell all your friends, you know, you need to talk about this. <laughs> but I remember the way that white teachers reacted. Uh, even to this day, I can remember how they looked at me differently as soon as they saw that, as soon as they really began to size up that my friendship networks were mostly black friendship networks. And so all of that begins to stick with me early on. Um, I go through school in Nashville. I graduate in 1986 and I go to New Orleans and, you know, I'm, I'm at Tulane, which is a plantation uh, institution for the most part, historically in the middle of a black city, a black city demographically, a black city culturally, historically in every possible way. And so the contrast was really very stark. And this is the 80s and during the anti-apartheid movement vis-a-vis -vis South Africa. And of course, you know, there were black activists in the city of New Orleans that were very um, patient. I don't know if that's the word, but they were very helpful to me in getting me to draw the connection between what we were protesting, which was frankly easier, South Africa. Not that we shouldn't have been talking about it, but it's easier, isn't it, you know, for white Americans to talk about what's going on 8,000 miles away in another right. country than it is to talk about what's going on down the block. Right. And there were black folks in the city that were like, yeah, this is great. Um, meanwhile, you know, the New Orleans police just killed a man down the block named Adolph Archie, uh, 1990, murdered him, broke every bone in his face, drove him around the city, pulverized him, killed him, dropped him at the hospital. He died. The coroner wrote up as homicide by police intervention. That was the official cause of death. No cop was ever punished for that. So again, uh -huh. here we are 30 years later and things sound very similar. Um, when you have all of those experiences and you had the foundation that I was lucky enough to have because of my parents and that early education at TSU, um, I think it, you know, it, it makes a difference. And I, and I was very fortunate. There are a lot of things about my childhood, which I would say are not fortunate. A lot of messed up stuff. We all come from dysfunction. Um, some people don't admit it. I, I own all of it. I'm in therapy. I'm good to go, you know, but, but in spite of all the dysfunction, I wouldn't trade that stuff for anything because that really did make me, you know, who I am and, and has given, have given me the insight to do the work that I do. So starting as that, you know, that was the basis of your childhood at elementary and um, pre-K. Did that cause kind of any tensions or, I mean, what kind of cognitive dissonance did you have to employ when you were I would say like a teenager in high school. Well, we what, what happened by that age, which is very interesting, I think it happens to a lot of kids that had my experience. So early on, that peer group, mostly black kids, most of my friends who I played ball with, played basketball and baseball, 
was good at both. And then when I learned I wasn't going to get very tall, basketball was sort of out, but I was really good at baseball. So I played on these teams where most of the kids were black. Um, and by the time we got to about seventh grade, eighth grade, is when you start to see those networks, those filial connections fray a little bit. And it's not because, and I hear this story all the time, all the time. Um, it's not because those white kids and those black kids who were friends for six previous years suddenly don't like each other anymore. It's not that. There's nothing that really happened. It's just that by seventh grade, the research says that black folks are starting to sort of notice what their identity means. That's about the age at which black folks are like, yeah, this, this means something different. And my white friends can't really relate to it. And there's a certain sort of insularity that black folks at that time have to practice as a self-protective mechanism. And me, the white kid, just coming off summer league baseball, come back to school seventh grade, you know, see one of my best friends who actually just passed recently. Um, and I see him in the hall the first day of school and I'm talking to him and he won't respond to me. And he says, you know, I don't talk to white people anymore. And I'm like, what? And he goes, oh, you know, I'm just kidding, right? And, and he was kidding, he was just joking around. But at the same time, he wasn't because he had some insights that he had gained and was gaining. And he just figured, Tim doesn't understand this. And he was right. And unfortunately, our school didn't really give us space to process it. So by the time I'm a teenager, what I found myself doing was disconnecting from my black friends a little bit, right? I started listening to different music. So in all those early years in Nashville, you know, I would go to bed with WVOL, which was the quote unquote urban station here in Nashville. And I would listen you know, early pre hip hop. So it was like funk and R&B. And then when hip hop hit, it was it was early hip hop, and me and my you know black friends, we that was what we listened to. That was we would sit and like very awkwardly freestyle on the playground, and it was ugly and terrible. We were not good at it, but we would do it. It's like 1980, 81. So listeners, you know who are who are hip hop heads know what what it was we were listening to. Um, and the by the time I get into like ninth grade, tenth grade, and I'm not really hanging with my black friends anymore, and I'm getting the impression that I'm not supposed to listen to black music because the teachers are keeping us separated and they're looking at me funny when that's who I hang out with. And so all of a sudden I'm like, I don't know what to music to listen to. I remember having this like identity crisis. Like, am I supposed to listen to journey and foreigner and cheap trick wow. and ACDC? Cause I'm not even into any of that stuff. So I went through a period of like four years where I didn't listen to music at all um, because I just couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do. And so it was a real, it was very weird you know, um, and it took me a couple years to get back to, you know, just sort of being who I was. It's kind of sad because, I mean, I, I tweeted something this morning. It's just, it's just a little meme that I made. It's, it's an empty classroom. There's a, a blackboard um, at the front, and I just wrote in it, this is one of the first places where racism starts. Mm -hmm. And it sounds as though that's kind of what you went through in your school. So instead of your, instead of educators breaking those barriers down, actually try to build them for you. Because you didn't, you didn't go into school with those barriers in place, but it seems as though they tried to put that scout, that racist scaffolding. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I had a fifth grade teacher who actually was so upset by my close connection to black kids that she actually told my mother during a parent-teacher conference wow. that any white parent who would send their child to public school in this day and age, meaning, I guess, an integrated day and age, wasn't fit to be a parent, not to have their head examined. Um, my mother had this woman fired, or I should say early retired. So um, good for her. But here's yeah. the irony, right? Here's the irony. As nice as it was that we had this individual removed from her position, 
the problem was the class that I took with her was an advanced level, like an honors level class. And when she was gone and she was replaced by somebody different, it was still an honors level class where all the kids were white, except for like two black women. There were no black males in the class, only two black females in the class. So what was the school teaching, right? Even if that particular teacher wasn't there to do damage to black folks, the system was doing damage. And however hip I thought I was at that age and however advanced my family was relative to many, you know what, we didn't catch that for years. It was years later that I actually realized oh, it's not enough to applaud my mom for getting the racist teacher fired when the system was still doing the teacher's job for her, you know? And that's the deeper conversation that we have to have. So I wanted to kind of jump forward in time and just kind of start the conversation off with um, with this question. So historically speaking, black, brown, or basically non-white people, we have had a difficulty in being believed when we try to say to society, we're being oppressed. All these really horrible, you know, the, the systems of the state are being used to basically brutalize us, humiliate, humiliate us, and in many cases, outright. So why do you think it's so hard to believe the truth about the American experience when it comes from black and brown people? Well, I think, you know, America is one of the most ideological nations, perhaps, in history. Um, we are founded on, and, and a very evil genius ideology at that. The ideology of America is so different than the ideology of the European nations from whence the founders came. Um, Because this ideology here was this notion of rugged individualism and meritocracy, right? The idea that if you work hard, you can make it. Now, back in Europe, that was not the belief. You were either royalty or you were peasantry. And everybody knew that if you were a peasant, The only way you were going to get a better deal was a revolution. But what they did here was create a society that said, oh, no, no, you just need to work really hard. If you just double down on the work, you see, everything will be fine. Well, once you place that ideology in place, once you have that as your sort of like social gospel, right? And it really is. It's like Genesis 1-1 in the Bible of Americanism is the idea that all you got to do is work hard. Once you say that, it becomes so intoxicating for white Americans in particular to then believe that if black and brown folks are struggling, well, but it's America, how can you be struggling, right? And, 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 and to look down on poor white folks too and say a lot of the same stuff. Oh, you're poor, you, you're Appalachia, you're, you, live, you, know, you're, you live in a trailer park, what's wrong with you? So we get, so classism and racism, white supremacy, all of those things are made easier within a society that has that ideology. I think it's hard for white Americans to hear the truth because it requires a rethink, not just of our own privilege and our own racial identity and what that means, it requires a rethink of the country itself and the nation that we think we live in. And that's like standing up in the third row of the church in the middle of the sermon and telling the preacher that God doesn't exist, Mm. right? It doesn't go over very well. Actually, you raise a really good point um, because I lived abroad for most of my life. And you are right about the ideologue. I mean, I'm thinking even if you would think the British, which is where I lived for the longest period of time, that they would be the ideologues, that you know, you would have a real codified, this is who we are and this is how we live life. Even that country's more relaxed. Yeah. So you raised a really good point. I I've never really thought about it in those terms. So I'm, you're making me think about that. Well, here's, here's my thing, because in, in what you said, as far as it's hard for white people to accept that, 
with the things that are going on today, do you think, like one of the things, the arguments that Brian and I have been getting into throughout the day, throughout this past week is talking about whether or not it's different than the others. Um, so for example, you know, you had the, the, the LA riots, you had the Ferguson riots, you had the Baltimore riots. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this one feels different. Yeah. I feel like I know the reason. I want to know, do you see it to be different? And if you do see it to be different, what do you think the reason is? Well, you know, there are some things about it that are different. And there are some things about it that are similar in terms of how we're responding as a country to it. There's still a lot of people trying to find ways to blame uh, the so-called rioters, those who were engaged in rebellion for the problem, rather than looking at the root of the problem. There's still a lot of folks who were trying even still to rationalize the killing of George Floyd as they have rationalized the killing of every other person who has died at the hands of police. Now, it's harder in this case, and I do think you're finding more white folks willing to condemn this police killing than has been the case in most of the others, with the exception perhaps of Walter Scott in South Carolina, would be the only other one that had had this level of virtual unanimity in terms of how bad it was. But I think the reason that we're seeing perhaps more of a, I'm not gonna say all, you know, all encompassing support for the uprising, because that's not the case. But the reason I think we're seeing such widespread rebellion in city after city after city, and not just of black and brown peoples, but of white folks as well going out for the first time is because we're in a moment right now, this pandemic moment, where the entire system is telling us that it does not care about certain people's lives. It isn't just Derek Chauvin. It's not just the Minneapolis Police Department. It's not just police, period. It's an administration and a society that is essentially saying, as black and brown folks disproportionately die from this thing, and as elderly folks of all colors disproportionately die, and as people with pre-existing conditions and working class people of all colors disproportionately die, that we don't give a damn about any of y'all. Like, this is what the society's saying. We don't care. You know, we're willing to roll the dice on all y'all's lives so we can get back to the hooters and eat, you know, endless wings or whatever. Or, you know, we don't want to have to wear the mask in Costco because that's tyranny. And I think there are a lot of millions of people that are like, wait a minute, that's not tyranny. Tyranny is what happened to George Floyd. Tyranny is what happened to Breonna Taylor. Tyranny is what happened to Tamir Rice and and James Crawford and, and John Crawford and Eric Garner and all these folks. So I think now in this moment, you've got millions of people who are starting to realize that the system itself has made it clear black life doesn't matter has made it clear that poor folks' life do not matter. Made it clear now that even elderly, sicker white folks, we don't care, y'all Y'all, 83 years old, you've had a good life. I mean, you know, we don't want yeah. you to die, but if you go, you go. Everybody's got to die sometime. I mean, at some point, this might be that moment when some of those white folks who normally are on that other side of the issue that are like, oh, to hell with black folks and that, you know, I don't get it and all lives matter. Well, apparently not right? Apparently not. The same folks that join you in saying all lives matter as a rebuttal to black lives matter, they're ready to kill grandma right now. Yeah, They're ready to let grandma go. So perhaps these older and sicker white folks should have been listening to black people from the beginning. And then maybe we would have some solidarity to push back on this thing. I think that's what's happening. Okay. To pick up on what Don just said, there's two protests in particular that really resonated with me and really made me sit up and take notice. And the president should sit up and take notice. Utah sleepy, quiet Utah where nothing ever happens. And Fargo? And Colorado. Yeah. 
Colorado's the other one. Those two in particular really make me sit up and take notice. Well, the right. Fargo, North Dakota one, I was like, right, right. Who did with you know? But I mean, I I think I'm gonna. So I agree with what it is that you're saying, but I also I do feel like there is a camaraderie that is happening because. Unlike those first three that I, those first three rides that I called out or for Eric Garner or for any of the others, Philando Castile, what have you, you didn't have police chief coming up, police chiefs actually coming out and saying, yeah, I need you to give me your badge if you feel like this is right. There was one that actually came out and said that. Chattanooga. And, yeah. 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 And then there was another one that came out and said, hey. I'm totally against this. This is not my thing. I don't, this is wrong. And then you had the governor of Minnesota. He made the most profound speech to me. Mm. He came out and he actually said, everybody wants to get back to normal. But truth be told, normal is not where we need to be. Right. And, and I'm like, okay, maybe there's a change that's about to happen. Maybe it's something that's about to give. We're about to get to a point where we need to move forward. Because in my opinion, like I was explaining to Brian earlier, I feel like everything is a, a repetitive thing. Going back, thinking back into my research and into genealogy, learning the information that I learned about the reconstructive era and how it, you know, was at one point, it was all about making it equal and, and white people got scared of it. And that's where the black codes and the Jim Crow laws came into play. And then you got into the civil rights time. And then we did what we had to do. We got some stuff done, but about around the eighties, we got lazy and we, and we stayed back and then we kind of stopped it. We just stopped it on our own. We didn't do what we were supposed to do to continue it forward. And we started falling down this, this rabbit hole going right back down and now here we are again and we've been in that now we've been in that rabbit hole even though we're trying to tell everybody what's going on even though we're trying to you know make all this out now that this has happened to this man as tragic as it is I feel like it happened because now it's giving us the opportunity to finish what was started from the civil rights era well, I, hope, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I mean, it's very clear, you know, Carol Anderson at Emory talks about this in her book, White Rage, right, that every step forward for Black freedom in history um, has been met with this counter reaction of white rage and backlash. And we saw that, obviously, in the wake of emancipation and reconstruction with the creation of Black codes and debt peonage and all of those things and the return of Black folks to virtual enslavement for the first few decades of the 20th century, even. Uh, we certainly saw that in the wake of the civil rights movement. We saw it in the wake of the Great Migration, actually, you know, with riots in northern cities and midwestern cities when black folks yeah. simply tried to move to find work. Uh, we saw it in the wake of the civil rights movement, and then later the creation of affirmative action, as minimal as that really ended up being, still a, a massive white rage and reaction to that. And of course, the election of Barack Obama, which whatever it did substantively for black folks or not was symbolically certainly very important. And it was met by the election of the very same guy who said, that Barack Obama wasn't even an American. So obviously, in a sense, um, we're in that phase of white rage again. The difference is we're living in an era, and I'll say this to someone who's been doing this work for 30 years and 25 of those traveling around the country. I have certainly seen, however slow it has been and however inadequate it has been to 
ending this monster of white supremacy. In the last 25 years, white folks having these discussions, following the lead of people of color, listening to what black and brown folks are writing and listening to what they are saying in speeches and videos now on YouTube and on social media, and really gaining some connection to black leadership in, in the movement for black lives and other organizational formations around the country, that wasn't happening 15 and 20 years ago. But in the last 10 years, I'm seeing that happen in greater number. And the more that that goes viral, the more that that notion of white accountability, white solidarity goes viral, and the more that you have white leaders, whether it is heads of police unions for the first time speaking out against this thing, or whether it's the governor of Minnesota, obviously it's going to be helpful. But the irony there still is grading, right? The reality is if no white governor said this was a bad, horrible kill, if no police, if police unions are doing what they always do, which is cover up for their members at all costs, this would still be something white folks ought to be in the street about. And so it shouldn't take the governor of Minnesota, it shouldn't take me, Jane Elliott or anyone else, you know, uh, Robin D'Angelo, Peggy McIntosh, go down the list of, you know, the white folks whose names people sometimes know as white folks who do this work. It shouldn't take us to say what black and brown folks have been saying forever. Now, if we say it and it helps, then we need to keep saying it. But we always need to question the society that requires of us the truth when really it ought to be enough that the truth comes from people of color. Yeah. So my question to you is, what is your opinion about the, the underlying, there's a fear, there just seems to be a fear within white America about black and brown bodies. And is it as simple as it's just a sense of collective guilt about the history of black and brown bodies in this country? Or is there, are there more moving, moving parts than that? I'm not sure it's fear at all, actually. I would say that it's contempt. And, and let me say this, uh, you know, when, when Amy Cooper called the police on Christian Cooper, no relation in Central Park, it wasn't because she was afraid of him. Um, she went right up into his face, was yelling yeah. at him. In the middle of a pandemic, got up in his face, yeah. pointed her finger at him. You don't do that when you're afraid of someone no, or something. If don't. I was in the woods and a bear came up to me, I wouldn't start yelling at the bear and telling the bear, get back, what are you doing? Stop threatening me. No, I would freeze or I would run or I would climb a tree or I would get the hell away from the bear. Amy Cooper is not afraid of black men. She has been trained to have contempt for black men. And I think that this society has contempt or I'm gonna say this, it's a spectrum. It's either indifference to the suffering that could happen when the police come. So just total indifference, which is bad enough. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is contempt and an actual desire to see harm done. And either one of those or anywhere, you know, within that polar spectrum uh, is bad. And it's worse than just being afraid. Now, is there internalized fear? Sure. But if it were just fear, I, I don't think that's what's going on. I think that, that it has to do with actually being trained to believe that black bodies and brown bodies and black and brown peoples are lesser than because that's the signaling that we've gotten from our history since the very beginning. It's not just be afraid of them. It's believed that they are lesser. Keep in mind, those Confederate soldiers went off to war and left their women at home with black men, never worried about what those black men were going to do to their wives. So it wasn't fear, right? It was contempt. As long as they could be held in bondage, then they weren't afraid. But as soon as they were free, that's when they got afraid. You weren't afraid. You just didn't believe they were human. Very different thing. I just lost Brian. That um, well, that that's deep, and that actually makes me think about another thing. So, since you're saying it's not, we're going back to Amy Cooper, and you said it's not fear, and I am 
agreement with you because you do not walk up to someone and when you're afraid of them, you do not put your finger in their face. You do not, right. you know, everything that she came out and she said was just really crazy. She just, yeah. it blew my mind. So um, my thing about her is though, do you think in order, he said he's coming back on. Okay. Um, do you think in order for us to approach something like that, do you think we should like get into the minds to understand? Because here's my thing. I believe that she honestly believes that she is not a racist and I'm not calling her one. Right. Um, let me be clear. I'm not even going to call her one, right. but I do believe that she doesn't understand that she definitely did a racist act. Right. Right. If that's, for the no one, that's the thing. So she's, I mean, Ultimately, ultimately, the job here is for those of us who are white to stop trying to divide the white world into the good white people and the bad white people. And just to understand that when you're raised with white supremacy, you can be a you can be infinitely good uh, in the sense that you're a decent, compassionate, caring human being and still do incalculable harm because you're part of a system that is rooted in doing harm. And so it's not about whether she's a racist. I agree with you. It isn't, that's, a, you know, in this society, we're all a little bit racist as the song and the musical Avenue Q says, because we've been raised to be. The question is when we act on the basis of that conditioning, are we prepared to be accountable or not? And that's, that's something it. which white folks, including Amy Cooper, who I understand supported Hillary Clinton and has given money to democratic candidates for whatever that's worth. She needs to get that lesson as much as Donald Trump. So do you think she got that lesson in what she did? Because one of the things that I read when um, she was apologizing, because see, nowadays, I'm going to be honest, this is coming from Donya, but I think I might be speaking for others, but know that this is coming from Donya because I can be a little colorful on here sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> the thing is, I honestly believe that her apology might have had some actual sincerity in it because so many times these people come and they do these things and then all of a sudden I apologize but in the same instance when I heard her apology she would give a reason why she felt a certain way and then she said but I was afraid how what would you do if somebody did this and then you caught her in her lies and things of that nature but there was one spot there was one spot that got me and that spot that got me was when she said I called the police for protection. I didn't realize until that moment that not everybody has that. Was that her realizing her white privilege? It was certainly her knowing that that was the thing to say. Okay. <laughs> I don't Thank know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I find it hard to believe that I mean, she's a grown woman. She works in the financial services sector. She's an educated person. I'm assuming that she has, you know, she's, she's in New York. She's seen the video of Eric Garner. She's got to have seen the video of Tamir Rice or of John Crawford. She knows what happens when cops are called on black. She, look, she's walking in Central Park. She knows what happened to those five young men in Central Park, for God's sake. She probably rails about Donald Trump, who, who still thinks they're guilty and wanted to see them executed. If you asked her about them, she would say, oh my God, isn't it terrible? Donald Trump wants to railroad those five black kids that didn't do anything for a crime they didn't commit in this park where I'm walking my dog, not on a leash. But the fact is she was ready to call the cops on another black man in the same park 
32 years or whatever, 31 years later. So she may be developing a sense of her white privilege. And if it's true that she was that clueless, then welcome to Education 101. Mm -hmm. But I find it very, very hard to swallow that apology in full. I do think everyone deserves the chance of redemption. That's not only Amy Cooper, that's someone on death row that's done something far worse than what Amy Cooper did. But in order to get redemption, you have to be accountable and an apology is not accountability. In order to be accountable, you have to submit to what the community that you have injured needs of you. And I have a feeling that what the community she injured needs of her is more than a, I'm sorry. It's gonna take a while. Mm, okay. And I guess my other observation, sorry, my internet connection is being a bit precious today. So I may be coming in and out, so I apologize. One thing that really frustrates me, and again, over the last couple of weeks, Donnie and I chatted about it because we've seen it so much. There were two white men who basically trapped a black delivery driver because they felt that he shouldn't be there. There was another, there was like a Grubhub delivery driver who had a gun pulled on him because someone felt that he didn't belong there. And I guess because I did live, I've lived abroad for so long, my mentality is if you, I don't have to ask you answer white questions. I don't have to justify why I'm anywhere. So long as I'm not doing anything wrong, just because you think that my face doesn't fit where you're seeing it, mm -hmm. I'm not obligated to answer your questions. What is, what's kind of your view of the history behind this white expectation that black and brown people have to answer those kind of questions? Well, America in particular was founded on that idea. I mean, ultimately, we've always asked Black folks, particularly Black folks, to prove that they belonged wherever we found them. So if we found them off the plantation, so to speak, we would ask for papers to make sure that their owner, presumed owner, had given them permission to come into town. Uh, if they were a free Black person, we would ask for some evidence of that to prove that they actually weren't someone's property and sometimes wouldn't accept the evidence when it was presented. And so you had people that were sent to the plantation who had never been owned before or who were kidnapped and sent there even though they had never been owned at all. Uh, we did the same thing all throughout the period of the Black Codes and Jim Crow. If you didn't have proper documentation, you would be accused of being a vagrant and you would be sent to work on the very same plantation that your family had worked under the system of enslavement, but from which you had been emancipated. Um, we have done this, you know, as South Africa did with past laws for many years. We did this as well. And we live in a country where, let's not forget, the current president asked the last president for papers to make sure that he actually had the right to sit in the house that he was elected to sit in, which is white, not only because of the color of the paint, apparently. So when you ask the president of the United States, a duly elected president, to provide paperwork that he belongs, we can't be surprised that it happened to the Grubhub driver. But what we can be uh, appalled at is the fact that we live in a country which would not exist but for black labor. The revolution itself couldn't have happened without the financing made possible by enslaved labor. So you live in a country that only exists because of black people and you want black people to prove that they belong in this country, that is precious. That is precious. That is worth commenting upon and thinking seriously about. I'm trying not to get up. You're making me one. I feel like I'm in church right now. Because <laughs> you was preaching just a few minutes ago. So, Brian, do you have another question? Because I do have some questions on the um, thing. I, I do. And it's keeping, it's keeping with the history theme. Um, so it's a little preamble. There is a white version of the Me Too movement when it comes to American history. Donnie and I hear things like, you know, my ancestors were indentured. 
or my ancestor was kidnapped off the streets of Liverpool or Manchester or London and, and sent to the colonies. And they do it in a way that indentured servitude is the same as slavery. Um, and it's not to say that poor Europeans weren't oppressed. History is the story of the oppression of poor people by the rich. So I, I mean, I get it. But what do you think of this equivalency between equating indentured servitude and slavery? Well, it's absurd. And I can say it as someone who, having traced my own ancestry, has more than enough found examples of indentured servants uh, alongside other examples of royalty and nobility. Um, and I have found examples of, you know, two people that were actually tried for witchcraft in the Salem witch trials, luckily both acquitted, or I guess I wouldn't exist as such, uh, genetically speaking. Um, so I've had, and I had a, you know, the Jewish side of my family came as poor immigrants with the proverbial 13 cents and a ball of lint in their pocket uh, in the early 20th century and faced anti-Semitism and faced oppression on the basis of ethnicity, nationality, language, et cetera. But none of that equates to being someone's armoire. None of that equates to being someone's property. You know, I've gone back and I found the will of, of one of my slaveholding ancestors, and it talks about how as they were leaving the human property to their offspring, right? So you read the will and it says, to my daughter Elizabeth, I leave the slave woman Dicey mm -hmm. and the slave woman Minerva and all their further increase. I mean, these are human beings to whom we're referring as, as increase. Now, no indentured servant ever had that in their indenture. No one indentured servant contract ever said, by the way, you're going to serve for seven years and your children are then going to serve for seven years and then their children are going to serve for 11 years and we're just going to keep this thing going. Like my white folks have, have faced oppressive conditions, but they all had a time horizon that made it clear that this will end. And not only will it end, but once those indentured servants were released from indenture and once indentured servitude was abolished, in the first few years of the 1700s, those white folks were given 50, up to 50 acres of land and the tools with which to work that land. If we had done that at the end of enslavement, we might be having a very different conversation right now if we had done the same for black folks in this country. But we didn't. We did it for white folks, though, when they were released from indenture. So it's an entirely different conversation. And the other thing is Donya wrote an amazing book called um, Comes to the Light. And part of it, you know, we did a little bit of marketing for it on, on Facebook. And one in particular, we did a kind of in their own words, if they were still alive, this is how they would sum their story. And it's a woman called Martha Brooks, who was a breeder. So I channeled, I was the one who wrote it. And I was channeling Martha as I was sitting down at my Chrome notebook in her words. And one of the responses we had is, oh, I wish you people would just let it go. Right. And you do a wonderful thing about American history, particularly um, around Revolutionary War reenactments. And you kind of say that white Americans fetishize white history in America. Right. We're very selective about what we want to let go. I mean, look, America is a place where every July 4th, we gather, wear red, white, and blue, and set off fireworks while we eat apple pie in commemoration of something that happened a really long time ago. We did not break away from the British last Tuesday. It has been a very long time and we keep celebrating it. And so I dare anyone that says, let it go. I, I want you to go to the July 4th parade the next time that there is one. And I want you to go up to the guy with the biggest I heart the USA button on his hat. Look him dead in the eye when the Boy Scouts are marching by 
and the fireworks are going off and say, you know, this is great, but I mean, when are you going to get over it? Right. Mm. And see how he responds to that. We just want to get over the ugly parts of our history. We very much like to remember the parts that make us feel better. Uh, I doubt very seriously that even a hundred years, 200 years from now, that folks are going to say 9-11. I mean, yeah, that was really rough, but you know, we shouldn't stop talking about it. Um, we're never going to stop talking about that because we were the victims nationally. And so therefore we rose to the occasion and we can be proud of that ostensibly. But if you talk about the things that we as a country did to others within our country, uh, then that's the part that's off limits. So it's very selective, this desire to forget history. Uh, we, we pick and choose. And I think Donnie has a question from a viewer. I can't get it now. Oh, well, I, I remember what it was. Basically, what um, it was from Maria Washington and Tiffany Huntsman kind of followed up with it. How did, would, because the KKK started in Tennessee, how was their reaction to it? And how was the people in the area as a whole, your reaction to the work that you did? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. My, I, my mom's side of the family is actually from the, the part of Tennessee or part of her family's from Pulaski, which is where the Klan started uh, in 1866. And my, my other side, my dad's side of the family, which includes the Jewish one fourth, but also uh, my grandmother on that side was not Jewish. Her father was actually in the Klan. My great grandfather was a Klan member in Michigan and in Tennessee. I remember the story. Uh, yeah. So there's a long and tortured history there, but which I know we don't have time to go into, but um, you know, I think Tennessee, I will say this, and I will say this about the South more broadly, and I've said it many times, and white folks outside the South can't understand it. People of color tend to understand what I'm saying. I honestly believe that those of us who are white in the South oftentimes have a deeper understanding of race and racism than white folks outside the South especially if we have come to a progressive political place. Obviously, whites in the South tend to be more conservative or even reactionary on balance. But if you are from the South and nonetheless you end up progressive, the odds are it is because you have confronted the legacy of racism because it's the background noise of everything that happens here. And we know it because we had no choice. The winners write history and we lost the war. And so as a thankfully, and as a result, we had to learn. The losers are made to learn, whether they like it or not, what their history is about and what their story is about. So those of us who come out of the South, we've come through the crucible of race. And so in a way, it's weird. When I speak at the University of Alabama, or if I speak at the University of Mississippi, or I speak at the University of Georgia, yeah, there might be people who don't like my politics, but the white folks in the audience, they don't look at me like I'm speaking a foreign language. When I go to the West Coast sometimes, or I go to the Pacific Northwest, or I go to the Northeast where everybody's supposedly so progressive, I will have folks there that look at me like, well, what are you doing here? Why aren't you back in the South where the problem is? I mean, that still happens to this day. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways, being from the South makes it a little easier for those of us who, who pick this path. Because, you know, if I'm from Portland, Oregon, or if I'm from Vermont, I can have all the right politics, but I may not have the background, I may not have the experience to actually draw upon that I would need in this particular anti-racist moment. Wow. Well, then um, there's a, another question from Yolanda Grimes, and she says, why is it that white people always claim mental illness when committing a crime. But when a black person goes and commits that same crime, it, you know, they're just looked at as a killer. There's no mental illness with it. There's, 
And that, and that's actually like a really great question because then it, it falls into those who are walking on the street who have who actually have some type of mental illness. Like I have a son who's um, autistic. Mm-hmm. And I can remember one time hearing about an autistic guy, a black man, being killed. They, you know, they, all you got to do is listen. You know, even my son might not have that look or whatever the case may be. But if you just, just listen, you can tell. And see, I'm, I'm, I'm the 300. I'm the movie, the 300 when it comes to my babies. Right. So, it, it, you know, I can't afford, that is one of, that's my fear of everything that's going on right now. I have three adult children, but as I just said to you, they're my babies. I have four adult children, but they're my babies. So if, if, what do we do when something like that happens? How do you, how do you deal? How do you confront it? And how do you deal with it? Because I'm telling you, I'm well, I mean, first of all, law enforcement generally, um, does not receive the kind of training that they need. And I'm not, I don't believe training is the answer, by the way, to law enforcement abuse. The problem is the system of policing itself and, and, okay. and, and how we view public safety and who should be responsible for it. But to the extent that there is training, there's very little around um, dealing with folks who have either mental or emotional disorders or developmental disabilities of any type. And that, of course, we've seen. We've seen that play out in police violence against people who were having emotional and mental breakdowns. Uh, or were reacting on the basis of a developmental disability, which the cops didn't understand, and they viewed it as an act of aggression when it really wasn't. Look, mental and emotional illness are real things, and sadly, we stigmatize those in our society to where folks don't want to talk about them. Uh, White folks do that, black folks do that, all folks do that. We need to do better at being open and honest about our own struggles with mental and emotional health. I have my own. I have anxiety and depression. Those are mental and emotional illnesses. And I own them because I think we need to destigmatize them. But the person who asked the question is absolutely right. What we do is in that moment when white people commit crime, we, we externalize the act. Now, it may very well be that the mental illness or the emotional derangement was behind the act. I think a lot of of really, you know, sort of off the wall, hard to understand crime can be explained by serious emotional and mental distress. But what's interesting, as the questioner points out, is that when black folks do those same things, we don't allow that that might be the possibility there. We don't allow the possibility that maybe that person also has bipolarity. Uh, Maybe that person also is schizophrenic. Maybe that person also needs, you know, proper medication. Maybe that person also has a mental illness. No, we just make the blackness the illness, right? We make that the pathology. We make that the dysfunction. Um, There's plenty of evidence that, that many folks who commit crimes are going through periods of mental and emotional distress. And if we didn't stigmatize mental and emotional distress, maybe they could have gotten help And then some of those crimes would never have happened. So part of it is making sure that we have, you know, an honest understanding and a destigmatized understanding of mental and emotional illness, as well as developmental disabilities of one type or another, so that we don't find ourselves in that position in the first place. Yeah, one of our our, um, fans, one of our uh, people just said the same thing. They definitely agreed with you about the training for mental illness. She said that there was none. So you, you definitely hit that. Go ahead, Brian. But I'm going to use my, I was speaking to one of my nephews and what really angers him is the disparity in response to people of color 
against the police response to white people. And he used a very specific example. He's like, so you mean to tell me that a, that a guy like Dylan Roof can go into a church and murder nine people in cold blood, mm. be treated to a hamburger because he was hungry, but this poor man who was in Minneapolis, just, he didn't even pass a fake note. Just the charge of counterfeit was enough to have four police officers, one with his knee on his neck, kill him in the street in broad daylight. Right. And that, that really freaked my nephew out. He just cannot wrap his head around those two realities. Right. Well, and I mean, there's so many examples. Now, don't get me wrong. There are uh, white folks who are killed by police. There are white folks who are brutalized by police, not on the same level per capita in terms of the rate, but certainly there are examples of it. But what's fascinating is to watch how often the threshold of acceptable behavior by white people is much, much higher. We're allowed to get away with much more. There's a video from a couple of years ago. I've, I've in, embedded it in one of my articles and I sent it around at the time. Two guys in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, white guys, who I guess had gotten a, a speeding ticket earlier in the day and they weren't happy about it and they wanted to go to the police station to complain, which is itself a very white thing, to be honest. Um, and so they decide they're gonna show up at the station. They show up. They got camo on, as I recall. They got semi-automatic assault rifles strapped to their chest. They walk into the precinct, okay, with their weapons. And for seven minutes, the officers who were in the front of the police station are yelling at them to drop their weapons, and they're not dropping them. They're telling them, drop your weapon, drop your gun. And these guys are arguing the Constitution. These guys are talking about Second Amendment, blah, 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 which has nothing to do with bringing your weapon into the police station. Second Amendment doesn't say that you get to bring strapped AR, whatever the hell it is, into the police station. But they walked in, and seven minutes later, they finally get them to put their weapon down. Now, we all know uh -uh. if they were Black. Or we know in Dearborn, which has a very large Arab population, largest Arab population outside of the so-called Arab world, if two brown Arab folk who are Muslim walk into that station with ARs strapped and, and, and say, I want to see the chief, oh, you're not going to see the chief. But at this one, <laughs> but your favorite, right. <laughs> yeah, not this one. We're, we're, and, 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 and we know that would happen. We know it would happen. There was a case a few years ago in New Orleans of a white guy that uh, was suspected of a crime. The cop rolled up on him. The white guy pulled the gun, pointed the gun at the cops. The cops said, drop your weapon. And this guy said, no, you drop your effing weapon. And, and dude is still with us, right? So, so this is what we know, is that there is a differential standard in the vast majority of cases. And until that ends, those of of us who are white are implicated in this thing. This isn't just about Derek Chauvin. This isn't just about the cops. This is about Amber Geiger in Dallas. This is not just about a handful of officers who have committed these kinds of crimes and killed folks. This is about those of us who are white. So long as we are receiving better treatment and deferential treatment relative to black and brown folks, then it's our issue. We, we can't, we can't put it off to somebody else or say it's somebody else's problem as long as we're able to get away with stuff, whether we're, whether we're trying to get away with it or not, doesn't matter. The fact that I can, the fact that I can walk into a construction site 
and not have some dudes follow me around the neighborhood in a truck a week later because they saw me in the construction site. I used to go on construction sites when I was a kid all the time with friends to smoke weed. I was actually doing criminal stuff in the construction site. Never once did I worry that they were going to roll up on me and think I'd committed a crime. I go mm -hmm. into construction sites now to look at the fixtures and the floors and just, you know, and no, I'm never worried about that. As long as I can do that, this is a white issue and white people have to do something about it. So in the closing minutes of the show, um, what I really like about your message is this isn't about white people feeling guilty about things that our ancestors did, because we can't roll the clock back, go back in time to fix it. But we have inherited the system that they either created or they chose not to change. What we do talk about is people taking responsibility. And how would you encourage people to take responsibility to combat the systems of inequity that we have? Well, the first thing is we, we have to get clear on our own racialized history as families and as individuals. Uh, genealogy can actually help us do a lot of that. It certainly did in my case. You can find both the good, the bad, and the ugly. When I traced my family, I found enslaved, uh, I found enslavers, but I also found abolitionists. Um, I found allies and solidarity workers as well as people who were Klansmen, right? So it's important to get clear on the complexity of our stories, number one. Uh, number two is to think about all the different areas in which you have some influence. You know, people have their jobs, they have kids in various schools, um, they may themselves be students, they belong to various community organizations. Think about all the levers where you might be able to apply some pressure. You can't do everything. No, no individual is going to be able to do everything. But if I work in a place, I can make sure that I'm challenging practices that produce inequality in that workplace. If my kid goes to a particular school, I can be showing up at those PTA meetings or on Zoom PTA meetings now, I suppose, until we get back to in-person stuff, you know, challenging tracking and unequal discipline and the way the curriculum is designed. I can be saying those things and speaking out in those ways. I can be challenging my own family. I can be contributing money to those organizations, mostly led by people of color that are out there doing the work uh, in the larger movement for Black Lives, whatever organizations I might want to fund. They're not hard to find. You can find lists of these organizations and the kind of things that they're doing in every state, in every major metropolitan area and around the world. So I, I don't think there's any limit on what we can do. But the first thing is we have to get clear on our own story. Because if you don't know your own story, this is all abstract intellectual stuff. I can read all of the academic books on race in the world, and I can understand it up here. But unless I understand how I got to be right here where I am, doing what it is that I'm doing. How did my family come to be on this soil? And who was here before they were on this soil? And what did it take for us to get to this place? And who had to suffer so that we could be in this place? And who among my family stood up and said no? Because I think most white families have got somebody that probably said, hold on just a minute, something's mm -hmm. wrong. We need to know about that. But if we're afraid to look at the bad, we can't even discover the good. If we're afraid to find the person in our family that owned another human being, then we're not going to find the one that stood up who can be the role model for our child. Right? Mm. So, so we have to be honest enough and humble enough to do that work and then figure out how we are going to make amends in the way we live our life and the way that we raise our children to live their lives. So in other words, getting them to actually dig underneath the surface of that wonderful phrase, make America great again. Right. Because again, racism is encoded in our language. Um, I was speaking to Donnie about this before we went on the show. It's like, um, actually, white America actually has a really kind of posh, lovely word for it, heritage. Right. As soon as I hear the name heritage, that's like a dog whistle for me. Sure, sure. And the irony of it is, 
you know, all that heritage and tradition, I remember several years ago giving a talk in at the University of Illinois, and it was during a time when they were having a big debate about their mascot, their sports mascot, which was Chief Illiniwick, um, because they were the fighting Illini. And so it was this very sort of garish, you know, um, caricature of an indigenous man. And, and there was a big controversy, and they had just gotten rid of the chief. And many of the students and the alums were very upset. And they said, well, it's our tradition. It's our heritage. And I said, you know, putting aside the easy argument, which is slavery was heritage, genocide was heritage, I said, here's the thing you're missing. Heritage and tradition are just whatever we decide they are. There are lots of things that are traditions. The tradition of enslavement was one, but abolition was also a tradition. And you chose to focus on the one and not the other. You chose to, to mascotize indigenous people rather than say, well, you know, there's also a tradition of resistance against that. There's a tradition even among white people standing up against native genocide. There were white folks that challenged from the floor of the United States Senate, Andrew Jackson, for removing indigenous people from the Southeast. There were white folks that stood up against the war with Mexico and called it a war of Anglo-Saxon aggression. There were white folks who have, who have done that. That's a tradition also. That's a heritage also. So when you choose to connect to the heritage of oppression and white supremacy, it's not because it's the only one that was there. It's the one that you chose to adopt. And it's uh -uh. the one that you were given and taught about. And you ought to ask why that's the only one they taught you about. Because there was another tradition that they ignored and it wasn't a coincidence. Which is something that really frustrates me because again, genealogy is an amazing conduit to history, to real American history. Yes. And I didn't even know that there were Chinese people in New York in the colonial period who supported the American Revolution until I started looking at various kind of um, American revolutionary accounts. They, right. were, they were Muslims in Phil colonial Philadelphia, New York, down in Delaware. Never knew that they even existed. All right. I thought was there were Europeans, Africans, and Native, Native Americans. Yep. And that was it. Well, yeah. you know, what you're saying to me is you, you wouldn't be against, like, the changing of what is taught in history today. Like, how do we, you know... Because one of my one of my big things, like I put out a challenge to our genealogists that are out here to actually try to go and speak at a school, because at this point, it's the only way that the, the real history is going to be put out there, because I agree with you when you said genealogy is, a, is the way is a way to get that history out there in order for you to learn stuff and things of that nature. And I, I, I agree completely and totally with you on that. So where do we go this is a, a mix because this is a question that's kind of it's like two or three questions in here and then i'm adding mine's in with it where do we go from here how do how can we move forward as far as all of this concern and do you see a way of even um having an inclusion of genealogy into the school system to learn more about history I think we need to, and I think we need to do it as a resistance genealogy, you know, because like I said at the earlier at the very beginning, in 1977, when Roots came out, there were teachers who thought very, you know, naively, oh, let's just have all the kids trace their family tree. Well, you can imagine that's a very different experience in 1977 for a black kid than it is for me. Mm -hmm. um, and now at least there are, you know, really strong black genealogy efforts, including those that you're involved in and, and folks that are doing an excellent job of excavating 
the deeper history, but it's got to be done by people that know what they're doing, like y'all and like others that are really in it. You got, I wouldn't trust just any like fourth grade teacher to do a unit on genealogy. And, you know, that would be dangerous because they wouldn't know what they were looking for. But I think what we've got to do is push for as a country uh, what South Africa had post-apartheid, imperfect though it was, some form of truth commission. I don't like the term reconciliation because to me it's very hard to reconcile something that was never consiled, but let's say truth and justice commission where we are required to get out on the table all of those things which have happened because Americans do not know their history. We are, an, we, we are a country that has elevated amnesia to the level of a national sacrament and mm. we live on that. And so we have to excavate that and we have to bring in local experts, not just people, you know, that are historians by, by academic training, but the people who lived the history of oppression and get their oral histories and their stories down so that young and send young people out as, as, you know, CSI detectives into the neighborhood to talk to their elders, to find out about that history, because kids love, kids actually will enjoy doing that history and doing that type of research. What they don't want is a stale history book that tells them to memorize a bunch of battles and a bunch of dates and a bunch of names to regurgitate on a test. But if you actually connect them to the history and talk about how it connects to the present, young people find that stuff quite fascinating and we can actually turn things around in this country and elsewhere. Awesome. Sadly, we have run out of time. Um, thank you so much, Tim. And you actually ended it on a really powerful note. I will I remember that line about Amnesia. Amnesia. It's, someone else just put on um on the thing. They were like amnesia in bold letters. That's and and it just fits. I appreciate you so much. And um, whenever you want to come, because you've been to WLBS before. Yes. And so whenever you want to come back, you can just say send me a me send me a message, Donya. I, I I need to rant. Absolutely. I got you. So great. I'm Thank in for ranting. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, y'all. Take care and have a good week. Thank you, you too. Well, Brian, that was an awesome show. And guys, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Um, next week, Brian, you want to tell them about next week? Or do you? Well, we're out of time. So we'll we'll post the, the show next week. Okay. All right. So I'm Donya. I'm Brian. Thank you for spending your Sunday with us. Bye. Bye-bye.